I wanted to talk to you. I, I don't want to have a po- political podcast episode. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> do that. Um, but I do. I've, I've never felt more lost and I need some pastoring and leadership in how to like, how to behave in an election year that is not showing allegiance to a person or a party or a side, but is like properly focused on the Lord, but also being like, not my other go-to is just to pull out, put my head in the sand and be like, well, it doesn't matter anyways. And I don't feel called to that either. I feel like that's wrong. So I mean, help. (laughs) So this this is a real experiment. It could be the end of your podcast. It could be the end of my ministry. (laughs) Hi, welcome to Bonnie Time. I'm really glad you guys are here. This time I spent with Robert Frazier and Cody in conversation was really cool, really unique for for the reason that we started recording right at the very end of the last presidential debate so of course I came into it with my brain racing with like a full body rash it was really intense and lately you know I've been just challenging myself to take down my opinions and my defenses and allow myself to be called up and called out and just praying that God will show up in that and give me discernment to sort it all out and this time I think was really special for that reason. Cody and I learned a lot and we also just stayed up late talking after we got off the conversation with Robert and it just gave us a lot to chew on, a lot to think about and um, pray over. I hope it does the same for you guys. I can't wait to hear what you think. Enjoy this conversation with Robert Frazier. Well, uh, my name's Robert Frazier, and I'm the pastor of a church plant that started three years ago here in the West Bench of Boise. It's called Redemption Hill. My wife and I moved back from the Boston area four years ago to plant here in actually the neighborhood that I grew up in. So it's it's fun to be back home and uh, to invest our lives here. Uh, really, we came back because we love the people and we love Um, this place and there was nowhere else we wanted to spend our lives sharing God's love in uh, in this neighborhood. So we've been here for three years and I also helped lead a a network called the City Network which is um, has a vision to plant a couple hundred churches across our city as our city grows in incredible ways and also with the hopes of saturating more of our city with gospel presence and missionaries who are uh, living to love and reach their neighbors. So um, some, some exciting stuff happening. Uh, yeah, I got four kids. Uh, the youngest one was just born a month ago today. And uh, my wife, Malia, is incredible. She's a nurse practitioner at St. Luke's in the Children's Hospital. And uh, she works in the ear, nose, throat. So that's us. Thanks for joining. And we're old pals from long ago. Right. I mean, I feel like it's been about 15 years or something that I've known you, maybe longer. I moved to LeGrand in 2004, and I think we hung out a little bit when Malia moved there in like 2003 kind of time frame. So it's been a long time, Lou. It's been a couple minutes. I have some fun pictures of us from like, I think it's Halloween. You're wearing like a choir robe and 
I don't know. <laughs> There's a lot going on. <laughs> I think Cody was like in junior high when. Yeah, I Cody was still in like. <laughs> I have some memories of playing intramural football with you. Yeah, were you were at, were you at my uh, bachelor party when that cop showed up? We were playing wiffle ball in the. In yeah. the you know, I don't know if I was there, but I definitely remember hearing about it. Oh yeah, that was that was an epic. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm excited for your vision for sort of networking and like supporting all the pastors across the valley. I think that's super needed, and I, I love your heart behind that. Is uh, do you are are you doing a conference or tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so we have uh, we have kind of three things that we do as a as a group. The first is we want to see churches grow healthy, and so we provide resources and relationship and connection points for churches that need help um, in the city. And then we would like to see not just healthy churches, but healthy churches that are multiplying. And so we want to help existing churches start asking, how can they, you know, raise up and send out leaders and teams who will reach new neighborhoods and be God's presence as they plant churches across our city. And then the third piece is there's a lot of people who move to Boise to plant churches about you know, yeah. five a year about, and we want to partner with them and be a great place for them to come and help us reach our city. So we provide awesome. a lot of support services to work with them and um, some coaching and training and connection. We want each of them to connect with a local sending church that will help them meet people and also help them financially. So we've been doing that. And then we have a conference coming up in April. That I'm pretty excited about. Um, we've been putting on the exponential regional conferences Right. But we're going to be doing our own multiplying, equipping for multiplication conference with the City Network in April and hope, hoping to really resource the church with great tools to raise up leaders, to be great ministers living on mission in our city, and also just give people vision for God's call in their life. So I'm excited about that. We're just on the beginning stages of that. Okay. That's really cool. And I, I mean, it's not very, it's just a fresh take to not have like a as a small new church not have like a competitive attitude but like yeah inviting and trying to boost up other church plants that's kind of refreshing yeah that's cool absolutely um before we jump in to some of our topics i wanted to ask you what just like a little bit of what it's been like to have a smaller growing church during covid season what is that decision making been like have you felt a lot of pressure or um it's been it's been a difficult season because everybody this is the first time they've ever dealt with it you know at least in america you know the first time i've been in ministry i was a missionary with crew for 10 years and then i've been a pastor for seven years and in that time you know there wasn't there wasn't ever a class in seminary that was like here's what you do when a pandemic strikes and they yeah. just don't give you a playbook and so i've been i've been walking along with um i'm part of a church network called the new thing network and uh, we had some great coaching courses with people who are basically like innovation coaches helping people ask different questions when challenges arise and that has helped me just kind of okay uh, Alan Hirsch is one of my favorite authors. He, he, he called it, he said, when you learn to play chess, you take away the queen from the beginner and then they have to learn to play chess without the most powerful piece. And then when they're ready, you give them back the queen and they become that much more powerful because they know how to use the rest of the board. And in the church, Sunday morning is kind of the queen. 
right? <laughs> yeah. Sunday morning is like how we do. We think that that's where worship happens. We think that that's where mission happens. We think it's where outreach happens. We think it's where discipleship happens. When in reality, none of those things really, really well happen on Sunday mornings. And so when we take that away, we've got to ask, okay, how can we make disciples when we don't have this important piece? Um, and for our church, we have a missional focus, which means that we believe that our job is to be equipping and sending believers to live on mission in the city rather than draw them to our church to be a part of a ministry that's happening. And so we, we have missional communities that we've been um, helping to grow and flourish and kind of build a a calling to reach out to the people around them. And so when we had to shift to a micro church um, network during COVID, there was a natural, this is who we are on some level. We still did Sunday morning. We had an attractional element, but we had to kind of go, okay, we have to do this differently. And so we shifted to a micro church network and have been learning a lot from some of the micro churches who have been doing that for a while, like Kansas City Underground and Tampa Underground and some of the other house church and micro church networks. And uh, I'll tell you, every step of the way, I just feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And I every decision feels bad because you just don't know what the outcome is going to be. And there's no, there's no precedent. There's no benchmarks to say, here's how things could go well and here's what it would look like. So it feels like we're just fumbling along. But in the midst of that, I feel like it's helped us realize that we don't have a good enough pipeline of leaders to draw on. We don't have a good um, discipleship um, structure and process for relational discipleship to happen. And so those are the two of the pieces we've been really building during COVID. And that's cool. It sort of helped. It seems like it sort of is something that can come along to sort of help you realize what you need to work on and what you need to focus on because like you said I like the analogy used with the queen and the Sunday mornings I think that's really cool I think one thing that's interesting with this like you you kind of alluded to it there is like there's not really a right or wrong decision necessarily because there's just really unprecedented everything that's yeah. been going on did you feel pressure or feel any sort of pushback at all with any decisions that you made as a church like this is how we're going to handle this did you feel any pressure or get any pushback on that at all um not not really there's a few people who i think if they were in charge they probably would have said as soon as we we're able we we're going to be back in person all of us together yeah and they've been a little frustrated because we've been slower on that side yeah. Mostly because like 50% of our church of about, you know, in a month, we have about 140 people come. 50% of them are under eight years old. And their ability to social distance is just minimal. You know? like, <laughs> it's almost nothing. And yeah. so we were really waiting for the schools because we thought that when that happened, it would, they would have the exposure anyways, and it would matter less when we did gather with kids. And so that's been what we've done. Um, and it forced us to, because we could have done that. We could have just hit it hard in June and just kind of gone for it. Um, and a lot of, you know, we've got four families who are walking through serious illnesses right now. They would have just been left out. And because we were able to go to like a quarantine with a micro church, they could be exposed to a minimal group and still have discipleship, still have worship, still have prayer together that they couldn't have otherwise. Um, a f there, there's a few people who fuss, but not really. Um, we're a younger church, like most of them are under 50 and I think politically are more moderate. And so like when it got politicized, the mass thing and everybody's, you know, kind of taking sides over like, 
you hate America because you want people to wear masks or everyone's going to die if we don't wear masks. Like we were, I was right. pretty much in the middle, like right. everyone's not going to die and you don't hate America. Let's just have some grace <laughs> to realize that right. hey, none of us know. Like this is a no. completely right. unknown. I was talking to a friend of mine who was a missionary in uh, Indonesia for 19 years. And he lived through SARS and some malaria outbreaks and TB and saw like some serious like health outbreaks over that time. Wow. What he said is at the beginning, everybody pulls back because they don't know the risk. They don't know what, what's going to happen. And so they just pull back and the government you know, rains down. And over time, people learn to live with the reality of the risk and learn to mitigate it in a way that they feel comfortable and then just get really just acknowledge that they can't control that there is death that we don't have power over i don't know for, for me like it's even just like watching the debate and stuff like that and it, it as christians like i think sometimes it can be complicated on like you like lou is saying you're so focused on maybe having allegiance to a party or an allegiance to a person um and i i don't know sometimes i feel like if that's hard to navigate and it, when you try to compare like how people are living compared to Jesus or how a certain party can align to Jesus. You know, sometimes it's just so hard, can be so convoluted. How can you as a Christian sort of be uh, an effective witness, but not get lost in the weeds on like so many topics that can be so heated and keep the focus, the main focus. Mm -hmm. uh, man, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, Partly because I've, I've been a news junkie since I was like seven years old. I, I would wake up at 4 a.m. and the only thing on TV was the news. Like, you know, like it'd be, you know, the, the color bars and then, you know, the, the flag would come up and somebody would like sing the national anthem and then the news was on at like four in the morning. Like, I, I don't know if you watch broadcast news in the 90s, but that was, there wasn't any, in Boise, there wasn't anything on TV before 4 a.m. Yeah, and I, I just I was an early riser, and so I'd wake up, and I, I had just been paying attention since you know I was a kid, and so I've always, I've always been engaged because of knowing what's going on, and it's hard, it's hard to pay attention to the news and not have some opinion about how things ought to be because when you listen to the problems of the world, we want to find solutions so that we feel better, like we want to find ways of making sense of the senselessness of the world around us because we feel so insecure when we don't. And so our brain just naturally starts like, okay, how do we create some, you know, solutions? And so I've been thinking about the solutions to politics, you know, forever. And uh, there, there've been times where I've been more politically active and less politically active. I grew up in the nineties in a very conservative place and that shaped me. Um, because I watched, I, I was surrounded by rabid Republicans, just people who um, thought of the Republican Party and Ronald Reagan as the saviors of America. Mm -hmm. And they thought of, you know, Newt Gingrich's uh, contract with America in the 90s and the religious rights and the moral majorities rise in the 80s and 90s as the way God was going to protect America from um, the liberal elite coastal leftists. And that so they, they jumped in full boat with one party because they believe that um, primarily the right to an abortion was anathema 
to following God. And so they wanted to save as many babies as they could. And they, they believed in this strategy, fundamentally, that if they elected enough presidents and enough Senate majorities, that they eventually would get to the point where they had a majority in the Supreme Court and that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. And then we could save these hundreds of thousands of babies that are killed every single year. And so I, I lived in that reality. Mm-hmm. And I've always been pro-life because I just, from a moral standpoint, it's, it's hard in any system of morality to say, you know what, it's okay to kill your offspring. Mm-hmm. Like it just, it doesn't make sense. Whether you're um, a humanist, uh, Islamic, uh, you're Jewish, you're Christian, even, you know, the categorical imperative of um, Manuel Kant and some of the just the, the simple, the golden rule itself precludes everybody from engaging in abortion. You cannot kill a baby if you believe that you shouldn't do unto others what you wouldn't want to have done unto you. And so like, I've, I've always had an issue with that. But the question isn't, should you have an abortion? The question is, how do we pursue um, limiting abortions and stopping abortion from happening. And so that that was like, that's been the debate from the right side for 50 years has been, if we do this one thing, we'll get there. And it looks like in the next month, they will have succeeded, that there will be, you know, 50 years, they're going to have a six to three majority of um, Supreme Court justices who were appointed by Republicans who the assumption is we'll vote to limit Roe v. Wade and the right to privacy that's enumerated in that decision. And uh, that's just been the only question that people have asked for so long that it, in some ways it's like we're in a moment that's like, okay, what's next? How, like, okay, now that that question, there was a Babylon Bee article, I don't know if you saw it this week, where um, <laughs> they said that um, Republicans are concerned that the courts might overturn Roe v. Wade because no one will ever have a reason to vote for a Republican again. <laughs> it, was, it was just like one of those, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that, that's a real question. So all of that to say, that's, that's the context I grew up in. So I was in a very, very conservative place. And if you spoke against any tenets of conservatism, it was assumed that you weren't Christian. Like that was just an assumption. If you were a Democrat, if you were a moderate, if you didn't vote for Republicans, you obviously hated God and wanted to kill babies. And that was the language that was used. Yep. Wow. Yep. And uh, I, I've always been, you know, a little bit rebellious my entire life. And so, you know, I, I just didn't want to be like that, like the people around me. And then I moved to Boston and spent six years there going to graduate school and seminary and working as a pastor. And it's a place that is politically as far away from Idaho as you can get. I mean, you're talking the House and the Senate of the Massachusetts State House has been controlled by Democrats for generations. You're talking about two or three generations. And it's mostly run by um, labor unions with mob ties. And so the last five secretaries, uh, I mean, the last five speakers of the House for the Boston House of Commons have been indicted on federal corruption charges. The last five in a row, okay? So it's, I mean, it's like, it's crazy far left and corrupt as Idaho is right and corrupt. Um, And so it's just like this, 
I, I've lived in both extremes and both of them think that the other side is just outrageous, that there is no reason and no rhyme to why those people believe that way. And there's just this world of difference between the experience of people who live in coastal major metropolitan areas and people who live in the middle of the country. And so if you don't fit in, in Idaho, I've always felt liberal and in Massachusetts, I felt very conservative. And so like, I, I'm pretty sure I'm in the middle because I don't fit in either of those places. Um, So, so all of that to say, um, America is a hard place to engage in politics um, for a couple of reasons. Like when you look at what the Bible says about how we're supposed to, um, how, how we're supposed to um, deal with the governing authorities over us. The one that people go to is Romans chapter 13. And it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. It seems pretty simple, right? Okay, that means our elected officials. But in our government, who is the power given to? The people. The people. And so ultimately, it's the will of the people that is our governing authority. And, and it's not even the people, it's the Constitution, it's the written document that then gives the people the right to determine their own future. And so if we were living in, in a dictatorship, it'd be simpler in a lot of ways, because we, we wouldn't be responsible to God for the decisions that we collectively make. But in, in a democracy, like you and I are responsible for the nonsense that's happening on TV with the presidential debate right now. Those two knuckleheads are an expression of who we are as a people. And the, we, we collectively, you and me and everybody in America, all 330 million of us or 250 million you know, voting age adults, uh, we are responsible to God for governing over this country. And we're doing a really bad job and as a Christian, you can't just bury your head in the sand because you're responsible. You have a responsibility and a voice, and um, you need to take what God's given you and try to bring, I, I think that instead of focusing on one or two ways to pursue justice, I think we need to pursue justice in every way, Yeah. which means that we aren't going to fit neatly in either party. No, it's like, fit, it's like, I, you know, it's like uh, trying to put on clothes that don't fit. Every yeah. time I try and put myself on the yeah. side, I'm just like, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem like what God would even have me be right now. Yeah, that's very well said. That's I resonate with that a lot. I resonate with that a lot. Instead of trying to just really put yourself in one side or the other, you know, actually really sort of using your mind and thinking about the different concepts and not being like, I'm completely this or I'm completely that. One thing that I was just thinking about today as a kind of an aside, and maybe there's not really a good answer for this, but with sort of this uh, excitement around like for the debate tonight, I watched the, a clip of the first televised presidential debate with JFK and Nixon in 1960. The sweaty debate when Nixon yeah. sweated like crazy and yeah. lost because of Nixon nervous. Immediately stuck out to me though, that it was such a contrast from how things are done now is the respect that the it was, uh, you know, they weren't bashing each other. They weren't even talking about each other. They were talking about what they were going to do, what they were going to take ownership of for America and how, what they felt America should be not bashing each other, not interrupting each other, not bad mouthing each other and, and not name calling, not, you know, all this stuff. It was such a different 
culture. Mm-hmm. And, and this may be way too complicated of a question to ask, but what do you think has changed in 60 years? This is like, because to watch that and watch this, it's not even the same thing. There's or, no respect between the parties, between each other. And it's not like a mutual agreement of like, because with Nixon and JFK, the first thing Nixon said is he, he basically gave respect to what JFK had said. And they both had an agreement and like wanting to make America a better country. And that's like not even part of this. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it's so I different. think it's reflected though in all of us people. You can't get online or have conversations that aren't, immediately personal and disrespectful and like yeah you just feel like your blood pressure rising so yeah i mean what are your thoughts on that what has changed (laughs) um we get what we want like the the entertainment of political (laughs) is an expression of who we are and what we desire and what we desire is it's not even power it's drama yeah. Oh my we like petty drama. Look at look at the television shows that fill our minds. There, I mean, reality television and these Real Housewives of you know whatever county, and you know it's just this the nonsense that we pursue as we just we want a little bit of drama because our lives are boring, and so we pursue it. And so they think that this is what we want. Like winning has become the ultimate reality. And I think that, like, that's where I really want to go tonight as I've been thinking about this, is that um, our politics are ugly because both political parties don't care about the policy issues at all. I really believe that those who are in power, those who hold power at the DNC and the RNC, and those who hold the Senate and the staffers for the president and the executive branch, I believe that none of them care at all about the policies that the people who vote for them care about. Mm-hmm. All they care about is power. And ultimately, when you look at the, the party who wins gets the spoils of winning. They get, you know, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of federal um, employees' wages that are passed out to the winning side. The whole executive branch basically flips over when there's a party change. And if you're, if you're the minority party, you all get left out of the gravy train. And if you're the majority party, you get all the money and the, the opportunity. So the stakes for our presidential and our senatorial and our house elections are just sky high, not because of the care for us as people, but there's just so much money at stake. And then you also look at our elections this year both parties are going to spend upwards of $4 billion on these elections for the House, Senate, and the presidency. And all of that money is being spent primarily by operatives who work as political consultants for the parties. And so the elections themselves are just a boon for the people who are going after it. So they don't care who wins. They just want the opportunity to make you fight over them so that they get the money because you spend more when you feel scared that your side's going to lose. Mm-hmm. And so like money is this absolutely corrupting force in our elections. And w- too often we, we like to believe that the way that we vote has only to do with my values. But the only reason that the parties care about those values is because they think that by caring about those values, they can get your vote. And they really never want, they want the issue. They don't want the win. So when it comes to Roe v. Wade, the Republicans never want Roe v. Wade overturned because they can't ever run on it again if it gets overturned. 
it becomes an issue that they've lost as a, as a party. Um, on the right, they really don't want to deal with gun violence because if there's not gun violence, they can't run on gun control. They don't want to solve that problem. They want to use that problem to gain influence over people. And we need, I think, like we, we pretend like we're cynical when we're really just like, we have like this veneer of cynicism that doesn't go all the way and say, yeah. we're being manipulated across the board by both parties for them to get power. It has nothing to do with the values or the, the best thing is for America. It has everything to do with them getting the spoils of power. And I think that we need to, we need to have a bigger voice about issues because when we speak about issues and when we care about issues, when we vote on issues, like real issues, like poverty, like uh, I think crime reduction and criminal, um, our criminal justice system reform was one of the major issues that we have that we need to, we need to address. When it comes to immigration, refugees, when it comes to um, supporting families, when it comes to supporting widows and orphans and single parents, like those are the things that touch everybody's lives. I want to remind you guys and talk to you guys about the Creative Sailor Retreats. My good friend Amanda Twilliger and I have been loving every second of the community that's been building up with us as we do these events. There is a fall one coming up with just one or two spots left. Message me if you want to jump in on that last minute. And we are also starting planning for the Spring Sailor. We're passionate about creating and holding a space for you, for rest, for inspiration, for clarity and creativity. If you want to know more, please message me and I hope to have you join us. And so like we have to think, I, I think very wisely about how much we let one issue decide for us how we're going to vote. Yeah. Right. What I think that kind of leads me to some of what I've been thinking about, which is just the broken human condition and the fact that we're putting all of our eggs in one basket. How do we like break it down micro size to our towns and our cities where we can behave like people who are pro-life people, which is, I mean, the young moms and the refugees and, you know, for, for their whole life, instead of just being angry and camping on our issues. Yeah, it, it's much easier to imagine that if we just win enough through brute force in our elections that things will change, but they won't. There, there, there's nothing that's going to change about people's hearts if we, uh, right. if we outlaw Roe v. Wade. It's not going to fix the problem um, because the problem is we love ourselves and we don't care about the needs of others. And that's not going to change if Roe v. Wade goes away. Um, I, I, I do think that the, the left is right in criticizing the right about being pro-life from birth to death. I have way more respect for the Catholics who treat it as a whole life issue. And they, they have, I think they have a, a, more, a more holistic view of justice when they think about from you know, conception to natural death. They oppose anti-life in every way. They, they will come against um, poverty. They'll come against um, uh, doctor-assisted suicides. They'll come against the death penalty. They'll come against, you know, uh, 
illegal search and seizure. Like the, the Catholics care about justice from like the whole picture where most evangelical conservatives have just said, we only care about one thing. And that's that those babies make it on earth. And as soon as they do, their mothers better get a job and get off welfare. Mm-hmm. And today, more than 55% of kids who are born today will be born into single family homes. Today, 55%. And then of the 45% that are born in the intact homes, half of those won't be married when that kid reaches age at 18. So most kids are growing up in non intact homes. And then we're we have a system that says um, if you're a single income household, the, your ability to provide for your children is impossible. All across America, nobody can live on a single income. And so we've said it's your fault. And uh, you know, we work with people who are in really dire straits, mostly because of you know, bad decisions they made and other people made. And then these little kids that grow up in their households become the victims because no one's willing to step in and say, even though those people made bad decisions, we're gonna be a backstop to the pain and the suffering that's caused in the next generation. And so we have kids who are grown up in really bad situations and end up in our foster care systems. And then our foster care systems are overloaded, so they end up in group homes. And then those group homes become a funnel into our criminal justice system. You you see, like, you know, you look at our jails, 75% of them, 75% 75% of people in our jails um, spent time in our foster care system. It's, it's just a natural outcome to broken families equal broken lives. Yeah. And so until, until we get serious about saying, we're going to enter in and be um, what people need us to be as a society. I love the idea of the church being that, but honestly, the church isn't even very good at like taking care of each other. The churches won't even show up to like, you know, the poor in our churches don't get well supported. Um, above our just paying our bills, most churches don't have enough money to do much welfare at all. And so if you're waiting for the churches to be that, the world is going to be in a very, very bad place. And I think that we need to be a, a voice to say that the whole, our entire society needs to be a part of caring for the most vulnerable. I really think that that's God's purpose for everyone on earth is to learn the way of God by being generous and caring for one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you look at the Jewish law, the way that it's set up is that if you have a piece of land that God gave you, which is the truth of every piece of land on earth is something that was given to them by God. Whether you bought it or not, you didn't produce that piece of land. It was a gift to you from God. And that piece of land that you have, then if you ring it for all it's worth of its value and then use it all for yourself. You are against God. You are committing injustice. And that when the poor people cry out to God, he's going to listen to them and he's going to strike you down and take your things and give them to the poor. That's what God says in in Deuteronomy. And so like as, as a people, we need to take that seriously because God brings judgment on secular nations like America, just as much as he does Israel. Like there's, there's no withholding of justice because, Oh, we're not a Christian nation. We're not a Jewish nation. God won't hold us to those same standards. I'm sorry to tell you, God's going to hold us to those same standards. And so if we want the blessing of God, our nation, we have to become a people who are generous, who love justice, who care for the poor and the needy, because the rich are always going to take care of themselves. The rich don't need your protection. They do a great job buying their own senators, their own congressmen, their own presidents. They'll be taken care of. 
Christians should always be on the side of the weak and poor because the weak and poor don't have anybody. And those are our kinds of people. I went off on another tangent. Sorry about that. No, that's amazing. I think that's honestly incredible, Robert. I I really like the perspective on that. And, you know, as Christians, like you said, it can be such a one-dimensional focus sometimes when it comes to political things of just focusing on getting babies into the world, which is a good thing. It's it's amazing. But we got to follow through on on caring for people, loving for people, loving for people in our communities around us, um, helping teens that have single moms and, and are in the system. You not know, turning to blind eye to racism. And, yeah, and instead of also judging them for not having the right, a good enough work ethic or making bad decisions in their life, you know, and, and like actually following up on really just loving these people. We Okay, we focus on getting them into the world or really convincing the single mom to, to go through with the pregnancy. Let's follow up with her and like love on her and help her and, and you know, show her the love of Jesus and, and get her plugged into a community that can help her and support her. You know what I mean? Not just like you said, okay, now you better get a job and you better not live off the system and you better yeah. not ask for help. You know, that's, that's, to me, that's, that's an incredible point. I, and I really uh, think that Christians fall short in that category well, and they don't link the two issues. I don't feel often enough. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Following the train backwards. Um, I guess that's where I would like to sort of land the plane a little bit is like taking so I, in myself, I'm not just calling out Christians. I'm calling out everyone is just like, how do we extract so much of the anger and angst and in, engage in ways that matter? Because on both sides, I have friends on the extreme in both sides, and I've just noticed so much emotion attached and anger attached, but not a lot of, not a ton of action. And, um, and I'm calling myself to action too. I feel like we all need to sort of repent on a level and get our hands more dirty. Um, how do we extract so much personal anger out of this so that we can be clear headed? Is that turning our eyes from so much of the drama? Is that shutting down our phones? What is that? Oh gosh. All right, I, I gotta go. I'll see you guys. <laughs> Good night, Robert. You get an important phone call. Sleep well. Gosh, oh, uh, my phone. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. I'm gonna answer this just from my own perspective and my own like journey. Mm-hmm. The first is um, humility is the only way forward. Yeah. Like just recognizing that. Even if I were in charge, even if I had all the best ideas and answers and I brought, you know, my gifts and my talents to it, um, I don't have it in me to be just and wise. Mm. And that we ask more of our elected officials in a bad system to do more than we would ever be able to do on our own. Um, So I I think that that's like a starting point. Um, Secondly... I think recognizing the reality of what your vote means is important. Like your vote is communicating something rather than it being an all or nothing proposition. Every vote communicates something to the parties about what we want and about who we're, who we're looking for. And so um, people will tell you that your vote is wasted if you write somebody in or if you 
um, choose a third party candidate. I don't think that's true. I think that that's communicating to the parties that they're not reaching you and that they don't care about the things that you care about. And it forces them, if 10% of the electorate just wrote in, you know, the name of their best friend, the parties would ask different questions because they'd be fighting over that 10% that wasn't happy with what they're getting. Mm -hmm. And instead we fall into this binary system where we feel like we've got to vote one way or the other. Um, Lastly, I think that we really need to take the words of the scripture incredibly literally when we hear him say, your struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the principalities, against the forces of darkness in the heavenly realms, in Ephesians 6. And I think that too often we look across the aisle and we think of those people as our enemies, when in reality it's somebody who's, for the most part, trying to do what they think is right and just, and they're pursuing it in a way that is a different strategy than I do. And we have different ways of seeing human nature and different ways of seeing how the future will unfold. And so we need to look at them and say, I care deeply about them. They're my brother and sister, and I'm, you know, whether whether they're belong to the body or the kingdom of God or not, um, they are still a child of God that He's seeking after as a lost sheep or as one of His own. And so I, I think that we stop treating each other like the enemy, because the other side's not the enemy. The politicians are the enemy, <laughs> and, and we we need to find ways to to fight against it. And I would say this. I think that a well-written letter and many, many letters written about policy issues will move policy much more than any vote because Mm -hmm. people who are passionate have a voice. And so jump in on letter writing campaigns about things you care about. Right now I'm working with a group with Eugene Cho and some pastors who who are stepping in and working on hunger in our cities. And they're looking at food insecurity and finding ways to fight that. And I care about that because I, I'm, I see hungry kids and hungry families all the time and I want to help them. And it's not going to happen by our church doing our best. That's only going to reach a minimal amount. So we need to have systemic ways to deal with that. Um, when it comes to immigration and refugees, I think that the heart of God is that those who are weak and poor and foreigner, because they don't have any advocates, they don't have any rights. They, the only people who are going to care about the foreigner are the Christians because we're the ones who just like them are exiles living as non-citizens in this world. And so we need to think like that and we need to take their cause and we need to walk alongside them. You know, and I think as Christians, you care a lot more when you actually know some, when you know some refugees and have met some, I know several, I employ several and they're incredible people, Yeah, incredible people who have lived through incredibly difficult things. And and, you know, sometimes they're just a group that have get completely written off or forgotten about. And that's not the heart of Jesus, you know, and that's it's really sad. But when you when you get to know some of these people face to face, your perspective on the whole situation changes and your heart. There's there's more compassion, you know, and understanding. And I think that uh, a lot of times Americans can be so far removed from that that they it's not they're not confronted with it face to face and so they don't really think about it it is easier to have policy opinions when you're <clears throat> you've got a kind of a wall or like a safe distance, distance. Yeah. yeah yeah how do you sh- how do you practically show up in someone's life who is completely across the aisle from you in a loving way 
Um, that's a good question. The way the way that I do it, the way that I think about it, is I move towards my enemies rather than away from them. Okay. Um, like it's so if, if somebody is just belligerent on the other side, um, I'm gonna pump the brakes. Like on a Facebook post, if things get out of control, I'm gonna like shut down the conversation and just like, you know, set the privacy settings to only me, so I'm the only one who can see the conversation. And then I'm gonna move towards them by reaching out, be a messenger, and be like, hey, that got heated. Um, and I, I always take responsibility for something I said, even if you know I probably was being more polite than most people. Mm -hmm. I still like I was being snarky. I was being uppity and rude, you know, like whatever those things that I do. Cause I, I'm a know-it-all jerk period. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to own that. Like I come in hot because I do know more than most people about most things, but it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm, I'm bringing wisdom to it or I'm, I have a way of doing it that's better than somebody else and me thinking I'm better than them is wrong. And so like, I, I always come with like an olive branch because the relationship is so much more important than anything. Like, it, like the politics aren't gonna change. That's the reality great. of the situation isn't gonna change, you know, once the election happens. But that relationship is the basis for my existence on the planet. I can't exist without the community God's given me. And so I, I value it more than anything. Um, and there's some people that, I can't have a, a, a conversation with because they're not willing to enter in. And so I don't enter in. I don't have those conversations with those people. I unfollow them or restrict them from seeing my posts on social media because I know they, they can't enter in a way that's constructive. I don't think that's bad. I think that that's, you know, like you choose who you have a conversation with about your kids because of the level of intimacy you have with them. It's okay to do that same thing with politics because there's a trusting relationship with some people and there's not with others. Yeah. And I just learned to like, when people are belligerent, I just don't take them seriously. And I, I treat it like it's crazy and I can't do anything about it. I just love them anyways. And there's nothing you can do. There's no way you can enter into somebody who's belligerent about an issue that's going to fix them or it's going to stop them from feeling the way they need to like be right about it. And so you might as well, like get a good laugh, try to be self-deprecating and love them because you'll feel better afterwards. It has nothing to do with like how they're going to receive it. You'll just feel like I did the right thing and I cared for them and I still care about them and they know it even if they are fighting me, like they still know I care about them. If you were speaking to your church or if some of some people in your home group or something and you wanted to just uh, say, I don't know if you even do this, but say a blessing <laughs> over them for this next couple of months to fortify their hearts and focus their minds, what would it be? Um, I'd tell them a few things. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things I would, I would tell them. Um, um, but I, I think I'd, I'd start with, um, when you go to the ballot box, may you be prayerful. May you listen to God and care about what He wants more than anything. Um, may we be people who are not easily manipulated by flattery. We're not easily manipulated by fear. We're not easily manipulated by muddy interests in our politics. 
May we be people who look out for the interests of others rather than the interests of ourselves. And may we love our enemies, our political enemies, our real enemies, our personal enemies, just like Christ did. Period. I think those are those things I'd say. Yes, love. Thank you. And thank you for just all the ways you're showing up in our town. It means a lot to a yeah. lot of people. <laughs>